Yay. He's ready to go. So that's how most of us feel after about 10 minutes of, of uh, Pastor Preston preaching, but Lachlan does it after about 10 seconds. <laughs> uh, I want to give everyone an update uh, on the uh, India, uh, the team that's in India. Uh, last Sunday, they were able to worship with the leper colony uh, on Sunday morning. They were the first Americans to ever worship on a Sunday morning uh, with that leper colony. And so to God be all glory. Uh, what an encouragement it was to that pastor. What an encouragement it was uh, to that congregation. Uh, they were able to do vacation Bible school so far for about 800 uh, kids, 800 orphans uh, throughout India at several different orphanages. Uh, today, uh, they are back in Delhi. Uh, I'm sorry, no, they're not. They're on their way back to Delhi. Uh, they're about 12 hours in front of us, so they're on their way back to Delhi. Uh, they will be uh, doing a vacation Bible school at a slum school uh, tomorrow, and so continue to pray for them. Uh, for all of those who care, uh, I did get word back from the Indian consulate in Houston as to why I did not receive my visa. Uh, Senator Cassidy, uh, Senator Bill Cassidy was actually very instrumental in communicating because they won't communicate with me because I'm not important. Uh, but uh, Senator Cassidy was able to, uh, to speak to the consulate on my behalf. And they said that because in 2013 uh, I went to India on a tourist visa and was involved in missionary activities, uh, they found out uh, that I was placed on a restricted list and I am not going to be issued a tourist visa. Uh, so continue to pray uh, for us as we seek the Lord's direction as to where, where we will go, because clearly it's not going to be India. Uh, whether it's Burma, whether it's Nepal, whether it's Haiti, whether it's uh, uh, wherever the Lord would have us to go. So please be in prayer about that. Uh, Jonathan, I feel like I got a, a buzz or a ring or something. I feel like I'm in a barrel. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 47 through 56 this morning. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47 through 56. As we continue to walk through the book of Matthew, we're getting close to uh, the arrest. We'll look at today uh, the trial of Jesus and then ultimately his crucifixion and resurrection. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 47 through 56. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hell, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put a disposal of more than 12 legions of angels? How then shall the scripture be fulfilled? It must happen this way. 
And at that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with me? Come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scripture of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that, that you promised to fight on our behalf. Lord, that we can stand before you in complete faith because of your goodness and grace. Lord, this morning, may you encourage us through your word. May you challenge us. Lord, this morning, may we be spurred on to obedience as we reflect on your holy scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to kind of communicate for just a few moments of how we're going to deal with the next few chapters. Uh, We've been walking through the book of Matthew, and we understand that that Matthew has a certain theme, and Matthew was written to a certain audience, and Matthew was written by a certain author. And we understand that the Bible means only one thing, and it cannot mean more than what it meant. Uh, The Bible uh, uh, has only one true meaning. Uh, The Bible has many applications, but the, uh, the Bible cannot mean what it did not mean. And so if the author intended to communicate a a meaning from the text, then that must be what we must extract from that text. We can then apply it to our lives in many different ways, but we understand that Matthew was written by... All right, let's let's try that again. I clearly clearly surprised y'all you weren't ready. Matthew was written by Matthew. Matthew was written to who audience? To to what audience was Matthew written? The Jews. And Matthew was written to convey Jesus, to present a theme of Jesus as the son of David, right? And so we understand that Matthew was written by Matthew to the Jews to present Jesus as the son of David. However, over these next few weeks, as we look at the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to look at the total of all the accounts so that we can get a fuller, clearer picture of exactly what took place during these last few weeks, uh, last few days of Jesus' life. So, while we're going to be looking at all of these different accounts, the account in Matthew, the account in Luke, the account in John, the account in Mark, we're going to focus on the Matthew account for our teaching points. What is it that Matthew is trying to drive home? What is it that Matthew is trying to communicate to his audience? So we're going to focus on, on all of the accounts, but or we're going to look at all the accounts, but we're going to focus on the account of Matthew in order to get the teaching point uh, that Matthew would have for his audience. So, I pray that, that as you leave this place today, that you will leave trusting God to fight for you. It is our natural inclination as humans, it's our natural inclination to defend ourselves, to stand up and fight against injustice, and to stand up and fight for what we believe in. And I believe that the Scripture teaches us that, that if we will allow Him, that God desires to fight our battles for us, that God wants to intercede for us. That is, that is who he is, that is how he desires to deal with his people. So let's set the scene. Let's set the scene. We have here in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus has just spent, uh, just spent an hour in prayer 
Uh, he's just spent all night in prayer. He left his disciples. He said, pray, keep watch. Temptation is going to seize you. The flesh is willing. I'm sorry, the, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he'd come back and he found the disciples sleep again and again and again. And he said, don't you understand? My hours come. The time is at hand. And just then we see Judas, along with the high priests, along with many other Jews, along with a cohort of Roman soldiers coming into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I want us to understand that at this time during the Passover, the Garden of Gethsemane was not, uh, it, it was not this, this empty place. But remember a few weeks ago, it's been a few months ago now, we talked about the Passover. And during the Passover, Josephus tells us that there was probably anywhere between one and two million pilgrims that were in and around the Jerusalem Judean area. And so if that was the case, then there were, probably, there were probably many pilgrims who were in the Garden of Gethsemane region who were camping out, who were, who were sleeping there because there was, they didn't have a Holiday Inn Express in, in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, there was no bed and breakfasts. If there were any inns, then they were, they were going to be completely full. And so there were probably many people who were camping and spending the night out in this region. And so while, while Jesus probably found a secluded area to go away and be with his father. This was not a place that, that was just acres and acres of, of no one. And so we understand that as Jesus is praying, he comes back to his disciples and he sees this, this large multitude of people coming. And we know that there was at least 600 Roman soldiers. If you go to the John account, uh, it tells us uh, that there was a great multitude. John chapter 18 verse 3 tells us that there was a cohort of Roman soldiers, that's about six hundred. Uh, that's about six hundred Roman soldiers, as well as officers. Uh, we know that there were also other people there. Uh, the scripture says that they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Matthew's account, Matthew chapter twenty-six, tells us that they were carrying clubs. Roman soldiers don't carry clubs; they carry swords. The Jews and the the uh, uh, the lay people, the high priests, their slaves, and so on. Those would have been those who were coming with clubs and weapons of, of some sort. So you had this large multitude of people, probably somewhere in the ballpark of 800 to 1,000 people, coming to arrest Jesus. And we understand that during this account, that Jesus is in complete authority. John chapter 10 says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down that I may take it up again. Jesus is in complete authority. I want you to go with me, if you will, to John's account, to John's account in John chapter 18. I want you to see this in John's account because I think this is often, uh, often misunderstood or often missed in the account. Uh, a few years ago, Mel Gibson uh, made a movie called The Passion, and he did a wonderful job uh, as well as, uh, as communicating the historical event of the crucifixion. But he missed this. He missed this. Matthew chapter 18, I want you to read with me from verse 3 to verse 5. Then Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things in complete authority, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and asked... And said to them, Whom do you seek? Verse 5. Look at what it says. They answered and said to him, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus responded, I am he. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing there with him. Look at verse 6. It says, When therefore they said, I am he, they drew back 
and fell to the ground. Now, I want you to understand what took place right here. Jesus made one statement. He made one statement, and the, the, the Scripture says, in John chapter 18, verse 5 and 6, it says, I am he, but the original manuscripts don't include the pronoun. The original manuscripts, Jesus said, ego ami. And everyone went, oh, right? Ego ami is the same phrase that's found in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. It's the same phrase when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It's the same phrase whenever Jesus said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. This I am statement is the same phrase whenever Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And whenever the Septuagint, whenever the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and whenever Jesus, I'm sorry, whenever God the Father presented himself to Abraham and to Moses, and God said to, uh, God said to Moses, go and rescue my people, deliver my people from Pharaoh, and Moses asked the question, whom shall I say sent me? If you translate that into Greek, the phrase is ego ami. Tell them that Ego Ami sent you. Tell them that I Am has sent you. So I want us to understand what took place right here. Jesus stands up and he asks the question, Whom are you seeking? And they said, We're seeking Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus stands up and said, I Am. He said, I Am the great I Am. I Am the one that causes to be. I Am that I Am. Jesus said, I Am God. And at that moment, at that phrase, at that statement, these thousand people that had come to arrest Jesus fell down. Now let me ask the question, who's in authority? Is it the chief priests? Is it the officers? Is it Caiaphas? No. Jesus is in complete authority. The disciples saw this event and they said, this is it. This is the moment when Jesus becomes the Messiah. This is the moment when Jesus throws off Rome. This is the moment whenever Jesus throws off the, the oppression of the Roman people. This is the moment whenever the Jews and whenever Israel rises to authority. This is whenever Jesus is going to take his place on the throne. This is whenever Jesus is going to assume the throne of David. And we're going to, I mean, with, with one word, Jesus just wiped out a thousand people. This is our moment. And so Peter grabs a sword and said, let's go, Jesus. And he cuts off Malchus's ear. And for a swordsman, Peter was a good fisherman. Because he wasn't going for his ear, he was probably going for his head. And, and, and he's not a very good swordsman, but he says, I don't need to be, I got Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword back up. This is not how this is going to go down. The disciples saw this as Jesus' time, and they took up arms. However... Jesus had just prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus had understood from his Father that there was a, a path, there was an ordained means by which this must take place. And so he told Peter, put up your sword. Jesus submits to the will of God and is arrested. Matthew chapter 26, verse 56 tells us that the disciples then got out of town. They fled. So this is the scene. 
This is what's taking place. And I want to point out to you a couple of things. In preparation for the greatest battle of Jesus' life, what did he do? In preparation for the greatest battle of Jesus' life, he began to make all the phone calls. He began to get on Facebook. He began to send out emails to establish for himself a, a, a group of allies, to establish for himself a, a, a group of people that would support him, right? He began to rally support for his cause. No, in, the, in, in anticipation for the greatest spiritual battle of Jesus' life, what does he do? He stops. He leaves everyone. He goes alone and he gets on his face before God. And he prays. And he entreats the Lord. If we believe that God is good, we'll trust Him. In preparation for the greatest battle of Jesus' life, he said, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he submits to God's will and completely trusts him. Even though he knows what's coming down the pike, even though he knows that I'm going to be arrested, that I'm going to be beaten, that I'm going to be falsely accused, that I'm going to be crucified, that I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to die even though he understood that in the short term this is not going to end well for me, even though he understood that in this moment it's going to be difficult, it's going to be hurtful, it's going to be painful, and I'm going to be for the first time in all of eternity separated from God the Father spiritually, not just physically. If you believe that God is good, you will trust Him even in difficult circumstances, church. My daughter, I have three beautiful children. Uh, I believe I've said this about 10,000 times. I believe the only reason God gave me kids was for sermon illustrations. I have a daughter who's 10 years old, and she just discovered, uh, she just discovered uh, what sex is. My wife and I had uh, sat her down a, a few months back, and we had the, uh, the ever uh, intriguing conversation of where babies come from and uh, and what sex is and and now that that we've had this conversation and she has this understanding uh, we've always told her that that when you start dating at about 30 uh, that, that that we're going to send chaperones with you on your dates uh, and 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 part of that part of that is tongue-in-cheek but there's there's a little truth to that uh, you know, I don't want her to date until she's 30. Uh, and when she does start dating, I do plan on sending chaperones with her, uh, whether she knows it or agrees to it or not, whether I have to, uh, to hire them to follow her and, and uh, wh- whatever it is, you know, you know sh- she's my baby girl. And so a dad's got to do what a dad's got to do, right? So we were talking the other day and, and, and we were laughing and cutting up about, about how whenever she does start dating, that she's going to have chaperones. And understanding now what sex is, and understanding the the covenant nature of marriage and how sex is a beautiful blessing that God has given us as, as a husband and wife to enjoy within the covenant marriage, she understands now the potential for how destructive it could be outside of the covenant of marriage. And she said this, She said, Mom, 
you really do want what's best for me, don't you? She said, that's why you want me to have a chaperone on my date, because you, you really do want what's best for me. It, it was like all of a sudden there was a light bulb that went off that, that, that she said, wait a second. For the past 10 years of my life, I thought that all the rules that you gave us and all these, all these things that, that you've been making us do and wearing shoes outside and not playing in the street and, and, and all these rules that you've given us and we have to eat our dinner and we have to take a bath every night and all these things that, that they, well, wait a second, you, you, you really do want what's best for us, right? We said, yes, we've been trying to tell you that your entire life, that we really do want what's best for you. And, and she had that epiphanic moment. Now, I understand that she's 10, and she's going to turn 13 one day, and then all of a sudden she's going to turn 13, and all of a sudden we're going to be, uh, we're going to be ignorant fools again. But, but, but I'm, I'm going to revel in this moment right here. Okay, This is, this is a, a, a moment of victory for me, and I'm just going to live here for the next few years until she becomes a teenager. But... Sometimes, I believe that as Christians, we think that God has given us these rules and and, and that that God allows things to happen to us, not because He's God and because He desires what's best for us, but because because He's mean. And, and, And when we grasp the reality that God really is good, that is His essential character. That is part of who he is, and his character is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whenever the psalmist says, you you are good and you do good, and that the very nature of who God is is that he is good and loving and kind. And and Moses said in Exodus that, that he is abounding in loving kindness and rich in mercy, and that judgment is his strange work. And we understand that God is good. Then we can say with Job... Though he slay me, in Job chapter 13, that we can say with Job that though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Yet I will hope in him. And whenever, whenever cancer riddles, riddles our body, and whenever our loved ones are, are sick and dying, and whenever our marriages are falling apart, and whenever our families are falling apart, we can go to God and we can say, God, I know that you are good and you desire what is good for me. And so though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. I will hope in you because I know that you are good and that you do good. We must understand that our responsibility as Christians is to trust God and do what's right. Micah says in verse 5, 8, he says, You've heard, O man, what is required of you to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Peter says it a little differently. In Peter chapter 2, verse 15, he says, By doing what's right, for such is the will of God, by doing what's right, you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know what, church? Character outlasts reputation. There was a moment whenever Jesus was arrested, and his reputation was that of a blasphemer, of a liar, of a false prophet. But character outlasts reputation. By doing what's right, you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. Church, we must trust that God is good. We must trust 
that he has our best interest at heart. And you say, well, preacher, how in the world can I trust that whenever my life is falling apart, whenever my family is falling apart, whenever my enemies are attacking, whenever, whenever my marriage is, is, is in shambles? Church, this is where I am imploring us to let's look at the scripture and let's extract the principles that are out of there. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus' response when they come at him with these false accusations, when they arrest him falsely, whenever they accuse him, and what does he do? Does he stand up and does he defend himself? No. He submits to the will of God and he trusts God. He says, I am going to trust that God is going to fight on my behalf. All throughout Israel's history, I want us to see this principle in Matthew, and I want us to see it corroborated by other passages in Scripture. All throughout Israel's history, whenever Israel would trust God to fight on their behalf, God would. Let me call your attention to the story of Gideon. The Midianites, in the book of Judges, the Midianites were, were oppressing the nation of Israel for years and years and years. And God raised up a man named Gideon. And we know Gideon to be a mighty warrior, but the scripture tells us a very different story. The scripture tells us a story that Gideon was a man who tore down the statues of Baal in the middle of the night so that nobody would know. And, and that, that, that he defeated the Midianites with torches and clay pots. And about 300 Israelites who had loud mouths. The story of Gideon tells us that, that the nation of Israel, what was left of their army was about 300 people and they surrounded the camp of Midian. And they had torches covered with clay pots and they surrounded the city. They surrounded the camp. And at the announcement of Gideon, they were to smash the clay pots and they were to scream as loud as they possibly could. And so surrounding the camp, they smashed the clay pots and they screamed as loud as they possibly could. And whenever they did, it awoke the Midianites. And the Midianites woke up and they saw the camp and they assumed that the camp was surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites. And they began to, to, to just slaughter and they grabbed their swords and their, and their spears and they began to kill the first person they saw. And they killed themselves. And the, the, the nation of Midian that was oppressing the Jews, God showed up and fought on behalf of the Gideon and, and fought on behalf of Gideon and the Israelites. And the Israelites did not strike a single Midianite with a sword. Because God's desire is to fight on our behalf. His desire is to fight for us. His desire was not that Jesus would stand and defend himself. His desire was not that Jesus would, would stand up to Pilate and Caiaphas and all these high priests and all these, these, these uh, religious officials and say, no, I am the Messiah and this is why I'm the Messiah because God had a bigger plan in store. It wasn't to prove that Jesus was right. It was that Jesus would be the Lamb of God that would save his people from their sin. And it didn't matter whether or not Jesus was right. What matters was that God had a plan to redeem his people. Do you see, church, that sometimes God's plan is bigger than you? It's bigger than me? It's bigger than me getting a visa and going to India? It's bigger than, than whatever it is that, that we have in our small minds? Sometimes God needs Joseph in Pharaoh's prison because he has something bigger in mind. Sometimes God needs 
your family to go through immense hurt and pain and hardship and come out the other side so that he can demonstrate his glory through you. Is your family falling apart? Is your marriage failing? Are your enemies surrounding you, attacking? Are your loved ones suffering? And our human condition is to stand up and to fight and defend ourselves and to say, no, this isn't right. I believe that God's scripture tells us that he desires for us to submit ourselves to the will of God and to trust him. For such is the will of God that by doing what's right, you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. That Job would say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Church, I think it's high time we quit defending ourselves and we allow God to fight for us. But preacher, you don't know what has happened to me. You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what my enemies are doing. You don't know what my enemies are saying. I know this, that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. He said, preacher, you don't know what they've done. You don't know what's happening. I know that God is good and he does good. And if we will trust him and we will submit our lives unto him, find ourselves obedient, that God will fight for us he always has he always will sometimes when we trust God we have to endure pain we have to endure hurt we have to endure hardship so that he can demonstrate his glory in us what we will see in the next coming weeks is Jesus understanding exactly what was coming, stood silently before his accusers. What's interesting, and we'll get to this in just a few weeks, as Jesus was arrested, and as he was flogged, the Roman soldiers take and they weave a crown of thorns, and they put it upon his head. They take a purple robe, and they drape it over his bloody, raw back. And they place a scepter, a rod in his hand. And they mock him. They say, if you are the king, free yourself. What's interesting and ironic is that here they're mocking Jesus as the King of Kings. They're mocking Jesus as the King of Israel, and He stands as the King of everything. Humility, church, is sometimes forfeiting your right to be right. Jesus had every, all authority, every reason to stand up and say, I created this universe. I was the means of creation. John chapter 1, verse 3 says that all things that were made were made by Him. 
Nothing that was made was made apart from him. Jesus is the means of creation. Jesus had every right to stand up and say, I created all that this is. I, I spoke these worlds into existence. I was the, the, the mechanism of creation. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I have all authority at my beck and call. But he didn't. He gave up his right to be right in order that God would fight on his behalf. And so church, what I'm asking us to do is to trust God, to endure the pain, to endure the hurt, to endure for a time so that God can demonstrate his glory through you. The arrest was a necessary evil because God wasn't looking at the next 36 hours. God was looking at the next 36 millennia. The resurrection was the thought of the Lord. Not the pain that was necessary for these next few hours. But it was the resurrection that would guarantee us eternal life. And so church, understand that though the sorrows may last for the day, the joy comes in the morning, that there is rain for today, but tomorrow morning the sun is coming out, that that our God desires to redeem us and to raise us to newness of life to give us life eternal and our thought must not be at the 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 next five minutes and the next five days and the next five years but our thought must be bigger must be grander that god has a desire to demonstrate his glory through us even if that means i endure pain for the time Let's pray. God, I believe that your church is your desired means and mechanism for demonstrating your glory. God, I pray this morning that as we see Christ as our example, as we see Christ as the one who gave up his right to be right, who yielded to the authority of God, who submitted himself and said, not my will, but your will be done, enduring the hardship, enduring the pain, enduring the trial for your glory. Lord, that we may see ourselves, that we may see the hardship in our family, the sickness, the disease, our marriages, our families, our relationships, that we may respond by saying, I'm going to trust God to fight on my behalf, for the battle belongs to the Lord. There are those here this morning who've been fighting against sin. They've been fighting against trying to be a good person. Let me encourage you, church. The battle belongs to the Lord. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be righteous enough. Only Jesus can accomplish righteousness. The good news of the gospel is that He freely gave it to us. All those who believe, all those who trust, can receive grace and mercy. Just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of appeal. As we do, I want to invite you to come.
Maybe you need to get to this altar and maybe you simply need to to submit and quit fighting and trust God. Maybe you need to quit trying to defend yourself. Quit trying to to do what the world is telling you and you just need to trust God and say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Maybe you're discouraged the hardships and the trial that you're undergoing and God has encouraged you this morning by saying, do what's right and you'll silence the ignorance of foolish men. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, maybe you need to give your life to Christ this morning. May today be the day of obedience. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to have the freedom to move in this place this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.